How's everyone's Christmas? Was it all right? Yes. Good. I see some nods, and just by the the sound, I could tell that it was either a really great Christmas or a really good Christmas. You know, you're either tired or you're just overwhelmed by all the family time and everything else. So if you're just joining us, which I think my parents here are the only ones who are joining us for the first time, we've been studying a journey of faith, the life of Abraham. We've been following Abraham from Genesis 12 where God calls him and he promises, uh, promises to make him a, a great nation and uh, number his descendants and a few other things. And we've been studying this, right? And the New Testament calls Abraham a patriarch. He's the father of the faithful. And we've seen so many times, time and time again, where Abraham certainly looks like somebody who would be the father of the faithful. And then we've seen other times, like Genesis 16, where Abraham doesn't necessarily model or demonstrate great faith, right? And we've reminded ourselves that he's a human just like we are, just like you and me. We sometimes walk on the mountaintop with God, and we're bold and courageous in our faith. And then other times, our faith wanes, and you know we, we start to draw back, and we may lie, we may deceive, we may be a little bashful when it comes to being faithful. And this is good news, because if Abraham is the father of the faithful, and he messes up, yet God is still faithful through it all, then we should be encouraged, incredibly encouraged, because God is faithful. No matter what. That's right, Deb. There you are. (laughs) All right, so last week we looked at Genesis 21, and does anybody just remember what we talked about, what we studied? Jared, Jared led us through the birth of Isaac, and who's the greater son? Jesus. That's, you're always right if you say Jesus in church, right? <laughs> Jesus is the greater promised son. We saw in Genesis 17 that God said, no, not Ishmael, who your wife's servant Hagar bore. It's your wife Sarah who will bear you a son this time next year, which you will name Isaac. We looked at Genesis 21, and we saw that God fulfilled that promise. Now we're coming to Genesis 22, where a very well-known text, the, uh, God tests Abraham's faith. And I know you've probably heard it a million times preached if you grew up in church or something like that, but we're going to study it again tonight, because this is really the climax of Abraham's journey, right? This is the height of his journey, and one of the most important pieces in not only his narrative, but the entire story of Scripture. And I got to wondering as I was studying and preparing this week, if God is omniscient, right, he's all-knowing, why does he test our faith? If God is all-knowing, why does he test our faith? And I want to offer a story. Uh, The Union Pacific Railroad, they were building an elaborate trestle bridge across a wide canyon in the west, And the builder wanted to to test the bridge. So what he did is he loaded up a, a, a train with extra cars and extra equipment, so much so that it doubled its normal payload, right? So it's two times heavier than it would normally be. And the builder drove the, uh, the train out into the middle of the bridge where he left it for an entire day. So here's this train sitting in the middle of this, this bridge in this wide canyon that they've spent a long time building, a ton of man hours, a ton of effort and energy, some injuries, I'm assuming, for this bridge. And here's this builder who just loads up a train and drives it out in the middle of the tracks. So one of the builders who I'm assuming 
asked sort of pessimistically. Yes, why, what are you trying to do to the bridge? Are you trying to break it? And the builder replied, no, I'm not trying to break the bridge. I'm trying to prove that it won't break. I'm trying to prove that the bridge won't break. And here's what we need to understand before we go any further. That God tests our faith to prove the quality of our faith and obedience. God tests our faith to prove the quality of our faith and obedience. So we're going to be looking at Genesis 22. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there, and we'll start in verse 1. As soon as I hear you say amen. All right, we're already there. Fastest flippers on this side of the Mississippi. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 19, and we're just going to just go for the whole thing. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid, on him, or, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the, the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, my, uh, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Let's pray. Father God, as your word has gone out, we trust that it will not return void, that it will accomplish its purposes. So we pray that it will accomplish its purpose. And as I preach, God, I pray that you give me clarity um, and that you give your children ears to hear. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, so we'll look at three parts. The first part is the presentation of the test. That's going to cover the first two verses. And then verses 3 through 10, we're going to see Abraham's obedience to the test. And then lastly, verses 11 through 19, we'll see God's approval. So before we go too far, we need to understand that testing is not the same as tempting, right? God tests to prove, Satan tempts to destroy. God tests to prove, Satan tempts to destroy. Now we see this elsewhere in scripture like Deuteronomy 8.2, and we know that it's something that God does. Deuteronomy 8.2, and you shall remember the whole way that, your Lord, that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So when God tests people, it usually involves their faith or their faithfulness and calls them to obey something difficult, as we just read in Genesis 22. And notice Abraham's response. When the Lord calls to him, Abraham, he says, here I am. Now, in the Hebrew, this resembles uh, the response of a king and a subject or a father and a son. This is an intimate and respectful relationship. Abraham has complete and total reverence for God. One of those words that over the years we've forgotten. And the test is pretty straightforward, right? Isaac is to be a burnt offering. Now, because we've been following this for the last few weeks, we know that Isaac was important, right? To, be the, to have many descendants, to be a great nation, you have to start with at least one descendant. So this promised son who Abraham's been waiting 25 plus years for is now here. And God's saying, you need to offer up your son as a burnt offering on the mountain which I shall show you. And it's here that we might expect to see the Abraham of old, right? We know uh, in his story that sometimes he's a liar, right? We talked about Genesis 12 and Genesis 20 where he told the sister lie over and over again. Hey, Sarah's not my wife. She's my sister. Yeah, you can go ahead and marry her. We might expect to see that version of Abraham. Or we might expect, expect to see the negotiator, right? Just like he did for Ishmael in Genesis 17, 18. But we don't see either of those here. We see the exact opposite. Abraham immediately obeys. It's almost like he's a robot, right? Does anybody, like, just wonder what might be going on in his head? God speaks to him. They, like, offer up Isaac, your son, your only son, whom you love as a burnt offering. And Abraham, kind of robotic, just goes ahead and does it. It's like he's automated. But I don't think that that's it. I honestly think that the narrator spares us the details because we can sense the tension in here already. And we see in the test that God leaves no such wiggle room. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. And we need to understand that human sacrifices were practiced in that region and in that time by pagan religions. And what they would do is they would kill the person, then dismember the person, and then offer him up as a burnt offering. Now, we also need to understand that this, Genesis, Abraham's story here, this would have been incredibly shocking to the original readers, right? To the original Jewish readers who read this, they would have been like, human sacrifices, there's no way our God could, do, could ask for that. Because the law strictly forbid it, or forbade it, excuse me. The law strictly forbade human sacrifices, and this is before the law of Moses. 
but we know that God is immutable. So if his will is revealed immutable, unchanging, he doesn't change. He doesn't evolve or develop or mature. He is, he is perfect as he is and does not change over time. This is good news. Because as he reveals human sacrifices are detestable to him, then we can know that here in Genesis 22, they are still or were then detestable to him then. He hated them then, and he hates them now, and he hated them when Moses gave the law. So, as we get to verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning. Are there any test takers here? You just love tests. Like, you're just ready to crush it. I'm not. Right? So what happens the night before a test, like back in your school days, if some of you can remember them? You cram, right? You cram, and then you try to go to sleep, and you're tossing and turning all night, thinking about what questions are they going to ask? What am I going to have to write? What do I need to know? You toss and turn all night, wrestling with the gravity of a, of a tiny task, right? A tiny test. And here's this, this massive test. Sacrifice your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Tossing and turning all night. And we know that Abraham is incredibly wealthy, right? So preparations like saddling the donkey and chopping the wood, that would have been servant's work. Abraham was wealthy enough to have a ton of them. So if he would have pointed a finger, the servants would have went, they would have uh, cut the wood, they would have saddled the donkey, they would have done everything that we see Abraham doing here. And there's a lot of um, commentators, pastors, preachers, Bible teachers that say, Abraham rose early, and it demonstrates his prompt obedience to God's word. And I agree with that interpretation. I agree that Abraham, it's, he's desiring to be obedient to the Lord. I don't think that we can see many other um, observations here. I don't think we can make any other observations here. But I want to suggest something to you that I found in my study. There's a Danish philosopher, his name is Soren Kierkegaard, and he lived in the ninth, uh, yeah, 19th century. And here's what he said. Abraham rose early because he couldn't sleep. He rose early because he couldn't sleep, right? Sacrifice your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, the one that you've been praying for, the one that I promised you, the one that you've been waiting for all this time, who's now here, the one who I promised to establish your name in, offer him up as a sacrifice. So while I agree with that first interpretation, what I'm trying to say to you is I think it detaches Abraham of his humanity. Looks like a robot. You put the information in, robot goes, goes and does what you tell it to do. But Abraham's a human, an incredibly flawed human like you and me. So I think it might be helpful just to consider the fact that Abraham couldn't sleep. And we can imagine this, right, as he's saddling the donkey, maybe a contemporary uh, illustration of that is like you're packing your car, getting ready for the day, you're like, why, God, why do I have to? do this, you know, or you're cutting the wood. I don't know what we can draw a parallel to that about, but you know, you're chopping it. You're all the frustration, your uh, confusion coming out with each blow. You're like, are you serious? God, how could this be? You know, and then you're picking it up and you're throwing it. And maybe that's just me. I don't know. You guys are looking like, yeah, that's just you, man. You're crazy. <laughs> However, at this point, Abraham's faith is unshakable. It's unwavering and unfaltering. And he begins on his journey to the land of Moriah. 
the place where God would show him. And we see this, uh, this same place named Moriah in 2 Chronicles 3.1, and it's uh, talking about Solomon's temple, where he built the temple. It's right here, same place, and we'll revisit that later. But then in uh, verses 4 and 5, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come, to, come again to you. So we need to understand the three-day journey, right? The first day, God gives the command, and Abraham starts to prepare. Second day begins travel. Third day, he arrives. All right, so that's the three days. And we also need to consider, right? It's you, your donkey, your servants, and your son that you're going to sacrifice. So you're making this travel. There's no cars coming. There's no phone with directions distracting you. Like, this is enough time for sobering reflection, a reflection on what God's calling you to do. Right, so there's, there's never a time that I can see in this chapter where Abraham is just freed of the weight of this task. He's never freed from this. And this is, uh, this is Christianity, I hope, that, that we can start to embrace. It's that white-knuckle grip on faith. And I'm talking about, yes, God is good and he is faithful, but man, this is hard. This is hard, and I'm holding on to everything that he's promised me. I'm holding on to everything that he's called me to do, trusting that he is faithful. But that doesn't make it easy. So I have a white-knuckle grip, because if I loosen it at all, then I'm gone. It's one of those challenges to God won't put anything on you or more than you can bear. This certainly seems unbearable. Notice what Abraham says to his two servants, right? He brings them on this trip only to be left behind. You're making this three-day journey, and then you've got to sit in the rear with the gear. You've got to sit with the donkey. Also notice the plurality in the verbs that he says in verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy, we, will go over there. We, we or yeah. We will go over there, and we will worship, and we will come to you again. The plurality that you read in those verbs. And he's indicating to us that uh, both him and Isaac will come back. Okay, And then although Abraham doesn't know exactly what God is going to do, his faith harmonizes God's promise to establish his offspring in Isaac. And the author of Hebrews helps us understand this in Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively, he did receive him back. So let's understand what the author is saying here. Abraham is walking by faith, obediently to God, who, who called him from Ur, from his father's house, from his country, from all his safety and provision, he's walking by faith now, trusting that two things will happen. Well, either one of two things. Either that the Lord will provide a sacrifice or that God is powerful enough to raise Isaac from the dead. Two options. And Abraham has confidence that, hey, God is faithful. He promised to establish my offspring in him. So one of two things is going to happen, because God is faithful. 
And then we come to an incredibly tense moment in the narrative in verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his, on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went up, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together, right? So here they are at the foot of the mountain. And here's your son who you know you're going to offer up as a sacrifice. You give him the wood. And you load it up on his back. The wood that's going to be used for his own destruction, he's going to carry up the mountain. And then you take the fire and the knife. Which do you think was heavier to carry up the mountain? Right, Because we know that for a burnt offering, this had to be a great amount of wood. Right? It had to be heavy. But this is the fire and the knife that you're going to use to kill and then burn your son as a sacrifice to God. Now, I imagine that the wood was heavy, but I think you might agree that the fire and the knife was heavier. We need to understand here that because the amount of wood was, was so much for a burnt offering, that Isaac couldn't have been a boy. There are some people who believe Isaac's like a, a kid, like eight and below. I think to carry this amount of wood suggests that he's either in his mid to late teens, if not early to mid 20s. Now, we also need to understand that if he's strong enough to carry this amount of wood, wouldn't he be strong enough to resist Abraham, his father, who's at least 100 plus years old now, if he wanted to? He's, not, he's strong enough to carry all this wood up the mountain, but he's not strong enough to resist a 100-year-old man if he wanted to. No, he is able. He is strong enough, but he didn't want to. His silent obedience is, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful picture of Jesus, and we'll see this later. But both him, Isaac, and Abraham have complete confidence and trust in God's provision. And Isaac has an incredible amount of faith in his father. And the Hebrew term for bound, we don't see that anywhere else in Scripture used in relation to ritual sacrifice. So Isaac, he willingly accepts this role, willingly accepts his role as a sacrifice. But can you imagine? Like, can you imagine this? Like, let's consider the two views, right? You're Isaac and you're bound and you're laying on top of wood and your father has his knife and he's like standing over you like this, ready to plunge it into your heart and kill you and then burn you. Or if we look at Abraham's perspective, there you are, you're like, this is your son, your promised son, the, your only son, the one whom you love. And now you have to offer him up. Now you're standing over him with your knife in your hand. You, you watched him, uh, you watched God fulfill the promise. You watched him your wife give birth to him. You know what makes him laugh. You know what makes him cry. You, like, you know him. This is your son. Your only son, the one whom you love. And here he is, standing over Isaac with his knife in hand. Can you imagine this? Like, just think about it for two seconds. Do we sense the, the weight of this? Then we'll move on. So, 
before, right just before, right just before Abraham plunges the knife into Isaac, he hears a call from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, just before he stopped it, like the last second. God intervenes again. The same God who has intervened all throughout his life, here he is intervening again, stopping him from killing his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So the the double call sign, right? Abraham, Abraham. It signals the urgency to stop. And I'll just be honest, I think that the, the angel of the Lord is actually the Lord himself, like in Exodus 3-2 with Moses in the burning bush, same terminology there. Um, but it could just be an angel who has the authority to speak for God, to be a messenger for God. And then I see support for that with the inclusion of me, seeing as, you, as though you have not withheld your son from me. Um, However, more importantly, some have used this verse to suggest that God is not omniscient, that he's not all-knowing, right? Because if he didn't know beforehand that Abraham wouldn't withhold his son, how could he be all-knowing? But I don't think that that's the case. I don't think that that's what the author Moses is wrestling with here. There's a difference between experience and knowledge. God is experiencing Abraham's faithfulness, and really, he understood it beforehand. Just like the builder, he built the bridge, he knew it wasn't going to collapse, or else he wouldn't have sent it out there. But he's trying to prove the bridge. Just like God is proving Abraham. And really, I think it's more of a benefit to Abraham than it is to God. And we know uh, verses like 1 John 3.20, that God is omniscient. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. And he knows everything. So we can rest assured that God is omniscient, and this is more for Abraham than it is for God. But it's also noteworthy here that Abraham's not just a, a hearer of the word. He's a doer. Right? In James 2, James talks, uh, talks about it. I'll evidence my faith by my works. There is a, a growing culture who say with their mouth that they are Christians. There's a growing culture that hear the word over and over again, but their faith or their obedience to the word of God suggests everything else. Abraham is not just a hearer of the word, but he is a doer also. And just as Abraham said earlier, the Lord would provide a sacrifice. He did. And it's interesting here that you're walking up the mountain, you're moving slow because your son has wood on his back and you're 100 plus years old and then you're ordering the wood right you're setting it up right so that it'll burn properly and everything else and then you're binding your son up if there had been a ram there before caught in the thicket don't you think they would have heard it right it it takes a a decent amount of time to do all this stuff to climb up any mountain I don't know if you guys have been to Dahlonega or you know anything else but it takes time And you have weight on your back. And then you have to order the wood. And then you have to bind your son and lay him on top of the altar. This takes time. If the ram had been there before, they would have seen it. They would have heard it. But just like Jesus, at the right time, God provided the sacrifice. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, 
Christ died for the ungodly. Just like every single step in Abraham's life, God is intervening. He's sending the right things at the right time. This is the God that we serve, this providential God who, who cares, who intervenes, who guards us from all of the things, from our own destruction. So Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, which the King James Version translates to Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. And this is the same God who walked between the carcasses in Genesis 15. We talked about the unilateral or unconditional covenant. Same God. And then the same one who gave a sign, the sign of circumcision to confirm that covenant in Genesis 17. Now he swears to that covenant by an oath. And here's what the author of Hebrew writes to help us out again. In Hebrews 6, 13 through 18. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character, there it is again, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So we see the test, instead of breaking Abraham, it brings him to the peak of his lifelong walk with God. And now here's where, yep, 10 minutes, great. Here's where I want to spend a little bit of time. There are numerous parallels between this story and the account of Jesus, right? We see in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The, the first, Christian tradition holds that it's this very mountain where God led his son up the mountain to be sacrificed. And this was for our redemption, for our salvation. And then here, look at John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Which son? Y'all can answer that. Which son? His only begotten son. Jesus. His only begotten son. Just like to Isaac, right? Your, your only son. Isaac, whom you love. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, whom he loved. However, there is one distinct difference between the, the test in Abraham's story with Isaac and Jesus. When God stretched out his hand to kill Jesus, no one yelled stop. No one yelled stop, right? Here Abraham is standing over his son Isaac, ready to sacrifice him on the altar, then burn him, and he hears, Abraham, Abraham, Jesus, they yelled, crucify him, crucify him. No one asked for it to stop. God the Father spared everything he had for us. Everything he had for us. And, and uh, sorry, he didn't spare anything. He spared nothing for our redemption, right? He gave all that he had, even his own son, to purchase our redemption. And God the Son, just like Isaac, willingly obeyed the Father even to death. 
Again, the difference. Isaac didn't die. Jesus did die. God gave everything he had for us. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that we serve. And what I'm curious about is what's the least that we can do for him? The God who spared nothing, yet we spare what our money, our time, our attention. He's not calling us to kill our firstborn. He's calling us to show up. He's calling us to spend some time with him. He's calling us to make him known. But no, 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 no. That's, that's, I'm, I'm just not that kind of person. That's just too hard for me. That was seriously my next note. The least we can do is give our entire self to him. C.T. Uh, Studd, a, a Christian missionary in the late 18th, early 19th century, sorry, late 19th, early 20th century, said this, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And here's the good news. He will take you just as you are with, with all of your sins and all of your failures, failures, all your defeats, all your broken promises and your entire broken life. He will take you however you come and make you a person of promise. And the good news is, is that he is a God who is faithful to accomplish his promises. So what are you holding back from God? I don't know what it is, and I can't, you know, search the room enough through words to probe your heart. But what are you holding back from God? That's what I want you to consider as we worship after this, and then as we leave, and as you live the rest of your life. What are you holding back from God? And then second question, is it worth holding back? Is it worth holding back? If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And then for those of us who have been tested, I want to encourage you that one thing we can be certain of is that our faith will be tested in this life. Right? Our faith will be tested in this life. And there's a pretty well-known quote, though nobody knows who actually said it first. But it goes like this. A faith that has, or has not been tested cannot be trusted. See, so the, the, the white-knuckle Christian and the one who just has this loose hand on their faith and, you know, it, it's hot sometimes and cold other times, it's, it's the white-knuckle Christian who squeezes and grabs and claws and suffers and cries and begs and pleads and remains obedient and trusts that God is faithful. That's been tested, that's been proved, and yes, we fail sometimes, right? Is there anybody else that, you know, you don't get it right 100% of the time? Great news, great news, because we've seen over the last several weeks, Abraham doesn't always get it right. He's not always faithful, but God is faithful. Uh, I think it's First Timothy, but when, when we are, um, man, that was bad. I shouldn't have opened that can of worms. But 
When we are faithless, God is faithful. New Living Marcus translation. But I want you to consider this poem as we close. It's called If We Trust. When the frosts are in the valley and the mountaintops are gray and the choicest buds are blighted and the blossoms die away, a loving father whispers, this cometh from my hand. Blessed are you if you trust where you cannot understand. If after years of toiling your wealth should fly away and leave your hands all empty and your locks are turning gray, remember then your father owns all the sea and land. Blessed are you if you trust where you cannot understand. Brothers and sisters, remember this, that God tests our faith to prove the quality of our faith and obedience. If you're being tested, it's to prove you, it's not to destroy you, because Satan tempts to destroy, God tests to prove. So as we prepare to worship one last time, consider those two questions. What are you holding back from God, and is it worth holding back? And if it's not, surrender it tonight. Surrender it tonight right now. And maybe somebody here needs to believe for the first time that God sent his son, his only begotten son, the one whom he loved, Jesus, to die on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And he was resurrected, proving his victory over sin and death. And in him, in his death and resurrection, we receive eternal life. So repent and believe tonight or surrender that thing that you're holding on to. Father God, we are so thankful that that though we change, you never do. And when our faith is weak, yours stays strong. You remain faithful to accomplish your promises, to fulfill your promises. God, you've given us your word telling us your promises that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That through him, through Jesus' death and resurrection, our sins, our broken promises, our weaknesses and our faults are forgiven. God, thank you for giving everything you have because there was no way that we could have come back to you except for your saving work. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all that you've done and are going to do. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.